I want to I talk to you for a few minutes this morning about the communication of God. And I just want to let you know before we even get into it, it's okay to laugh in church. There's going to be some things about Scripture today that are just, it's just funny. And I hate being in a church where everybody thinks that you have to be so serious. That, do you know God had a sense of humor? A, just look at us. God has a great sense of humor. Uh, I'm going to ask if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. And I'm going to read four verses, and then we're going to turn to John chapter 10, verse 10. That's going to set the stage for the theme today, which is the communication of God. The communication of God. In John 1, 1 through 4, the Scripture says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made which has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. I want to read verse 4 to you again, and I want you to highlight this in your thinking. In Him, Him being Jesus, the Word, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of of men. Now, if you turn to chapter 10 in the same book, you'll notice for those of you that have red letter edition Bibles that what we're about to read is in red, which means that this is Jesus speaking. Chapter 1 is largely an introduction, a narrative introduction to the gospel of Jesus. And now Jesus himself in following up with the thoughts that John has put here as it relates to the issues of life, now he speaks and in John 10.10 10 it says this. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, or depending on the translation that you may have, it might say, or have it more abundantly. Now, Father, as we approach your word today, I ask that you would remove every obstacle that would keep us from hearing and understanding and rightly receiving your word of truth and that it would do something eternal within our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to give credit and acknowledge the work of Dr. Mark Rutland in, in helping me formulate some of my thoughts as it relates to these scriptures. I have devoted a significant portion of my adult life to the study of communication and what makes communication work and what happens when it doesn't work, what, what happens when it all goes south. Uh, when I worked in the district office years ago in 1996 when I was first elected to serve as the district youth director, Brother Bartholomew was our district superintendent at that time and I remember being in a service with him when he told this story. There was a pastor's wife who had a little shoebox that she had put up into her closet and she asked her husband, if it would be okay with you, just never look within that shoebox. If I could just have one thing in my life that is personal to me, I would appreciate it. Years had gone by and one day he is cleaning out a closet. I know that's hard to believe that a man would ever do that. But as he's cleaning out the closet, he comes across that shoebox sitting up there and curiosity got, got a hold of him. So he, he brings the shoebox down and he opens it up and as he opens it up, there's six eggs in the box and there's a gigantic roll of $1 bills that are wrapped up in rubber bands. Well, now he has to have an explanation. So when his wife gets home 
And she sees the box on the bed. He said, I, I know that you wanted just one thing that was private, but I couldn't help myself. Can you please explain to me what this is? And she says, well, every time you preach a bad message, I put an egg in the box. And, and he began to smile. I mean, he almost started strutting. He goes, I've been in the ministry a long time, and there's... There's only six eggs in there. And she goes, every time I get to a dozen, I sell them. And that's what the dollar bills are that are wrapped up in, in that box. I believe that if we were to boil the topic of communication or the discipline of communication down, what would rise to the top are four things. Number one, the right message to the right party in the right way and at the right time. And, and if you get any of those four variables wrong, it can all go wrong really fast. And, and you might think that you are transmitting clearly, but you can tell by the look on people's face that you are standing alone in a room and they're not getting a single thing you are saying. And I don't know how many of you have ever been on your cell phone when you, you get to the top of the hill here and you make a right, but there's a little place up there where a cell connection is really bad. And I have been on the phone with some of you, and I get there, and as I'm turning there, it gets really spotty, and, and we are forced to try to capture the context of an entire phone call with 10-second breaks. Or maybe you're hearing every fourth or fifth word, and you're trying to put things together, and you begin to understand that it gets really, really easy to misunderstand everything that is being said. In fact, the issue of communication today is complicated by language, by culture, by words that mean different things to different places. It can even be complicated by generational transition. I was riding in the car the other day with Pastor Jacob and Pastor Pablo, and they were talking about movies, and I didn't understand a word that they were saying. <laughs> there was a language going on there, and I'm just driving going, I have never felt so old in all of my life <laughs> as I do right now. In fact, words are changing in the English language so quickly that for those of you that are young, I want to prophesy to you today. <laughs> if you live long enough to have an average lifespan, I promise you that there are words that you are using today that when you are my age will mean something completely different than the way that you use them now. In fact, I'm looking around this room and there are several of you that look as mature as me. How many of you remember when the word gay meant happy? There are a few of you. There's a whole generation that doesn't have any idea what we're talking about. When I was a kid, gay had nothing to do with orientation. It had everything to do with disposition. And so, how many of you remember the Christmas song that says, Don we now are gay apparel, fa la 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 la. That does not mean Christmas in drag for you young people. <laughs> that just means that we were really happy about the birth of Jesus Christ. So that brings us to what is the communication problem of God? Now, some of you are going, God has no problems. Oh, but he does. You see, the transmitter is perfect, and the transmission is perfect. <laughs> All of the receivers are broken. 
We're, we're all broken. Every transmission from God is received and filtered through our life experiences, through the way that we want things to be, through fallen and carnal humanity. So God is constantly speaking to us, but we receive it garbled, which is why so many people have so different, many different views on what the Word of God means. And so in order for him to make communication as clear as possible, Jesus became the communication of God. In fact, the Bible speaks to us in Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In other words, I put forth a lot of effort to try to get you the message through lots of different people and lots of different ways, and you mistreated them all. So it goes on to say, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. He has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, through the Word. That is the exact theme that John picks up on in the open narrative of the Gospel of John. He says, and the Word, the communication, the preexistent communication of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was the historical communication of the preexistent, co-eternal thought of God. So before there was light, before there was anything created, God thought inside of himself. And that communication of everything that is created, which is what we just read, everything that was created came from the thought of God, was not made by the fingers of God. It was communicated by God. God said, communicated, let there be light. God spoke from his thoughts through his words everything into existence that exists today. Therefore, the Word of God, Jesus, as we look at this, was pre-creation, pre-existent, co-eternal, the second person of the Trinity. And God said, they've rejected every messenger that I've ever sent, all of the prophets. They can't hear what I'm saying, so I am going to send them the perfect divine communication. And so the Word of God, the thought of God, became flesh. God spoke the Word into the womb of a virgin named Mary. And the Word developed a human body within her and became Jesus of Nazareth. And the baby that was born was the preexistent, co-eternal, second person of the Trinity, the perfect divine communication. Now, the answer for all of the need of redemption was the coming of Jesus. He had to be a real human being because it tells us in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. So Jesus couldn't be an angel. For those of you that are young, he couldn't be an avatar. He couldn't be a hologram to bring the divine, perfect message of redemption because none of those things or beings 
bleed. It had to be a real human being in order for him to bleed. So think about this. If Jesus had lived to be 100 years old and had died of old age in a nursing home in Jerusalem, all of us would be going to hell. He had to be a real human being. But there's the problem for us. We are not good with the idea that Jesus was a real human being. In fact, the Scripture tells us not only was He real, He looked real. Jesus did not glow in the dark. Jesus did not have a halo wherever He went. In fact, if Jesus had walked into every room levitating three feet off the ground, had blue lightning bolts flying out of his fingerprints, or fingertips and had music playing in the background. I don't know, people might have looked at him and said, you know, I'm just guessing here, Messiah. But it didn't happen that way. The problem is that Jesus looked just like everyone else. And the Scripture tells us in, that he wasn't even handsome. It says he was not comely. I mean, it, you look at Jesus, you're not going to take a second glance again. That is a handsome individual. He was just normal and common-looking, an ordinary guy. In fact, as we get to it, there really wasn't anything miraculous about the birth of Jesus. His birth was an ordinary, regular birth. And for those of you who are mothers here today, Mary went through all of the pains of childbirth, and it was, it was probably messy and filled with fluid and all the other stuff that comes along with childbirth. There was nothing miraculous about his birth. He was born a real baby. Now, however, his conception was miraculous, but not the birth. But we don't like making Jesus a real baby. We struggle with that. So we try to clean it up and we, and we tidy it up a little bit and, and we, we try to think that there was something unusual about his babyhood. In fact, we, for those of you that sing the song like Away in a Manger, I think it has it all wrong because the words are, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. What's up with that? For those of you that are parents, did your babies crying they make? <laughs> Cindy and I were watching a, a show the other night about this mother who was a doctor and she's walking around all night long with the baby crying over the shoulder and, I, and I'm thinking, I, in fact, I told Cindy, I said, I, I like the idea of Joseph at three in the morning picking up the baby and he's walking back and forth and he's trying to burp Jesus and, you know, Mary's exhausted and he's going, God, I don't care if you make him the Messiah. Just make him go to sleep. <laughs> let, let me have just a moment of peace in all of this. Not only did Jesus crying he made, he did everything else the babies do. Baby Jesus had blowouts. Put that on a Christmas card. <laughs> and all of this is theologically really, really important. Because if it's not true, then Jesus wasn't a real human. And if he wasn't a real human, then he cannot identify with us in our most defenseless, filthiest moments when we need somebody else to clean us up. So Jesus was a real baby. And like all real babies, human babies have no sense of self-awareness. 
Babies don't lie there thinking, I'm a baby now, but I'm going to grow up. And I'm going to know more than my mom and dad. They don't, they don't think that when they're babies. They are just babies. And Jesus was entirely imprisoned in his own infancy. In fact, when Jesus was breastfeeding, he's not staring into Mary's eyes thinking, do you know that I'm the eternally existent? Second person of the Trinity? No. He's just looking for milk. But the Bible tells us that he didn't stay that way. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, verses 52, it says this, And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Now, this is a really, really important verse for us. In other words, he grew into self-awareness of himself as a human being. All people at some age begin to recognize some sense of self-awareness. Now, for those of you that are parents of junior high boys, I recognize right now you're a little worried, but it will come. They will grow into self-awareness. And not only that, but as we begin to move into that, we begin to understand the world gets a little bit bigger. However, Jesus was different in this way because not only did he grow in self-awareness as a man, he began to grow in self-awareness as God. This little human being was also becoming aware of himself as the preexistent, co-eternal, second person of the Trinity. He is growing in understanding that he is the divine communication of God, and he is remembering as he gets older his preexistence with God as God as he becomes self-aware. Therefore, he begins to think in a new language. He's thinking in the language of God. He's thinking in the divine language of his divinity. Now, we look at this and go, what, what is the language of God? Well, when God said, let us make men in our own image, what language do you think he was speaking? He wasn't talking to angels. He was talking to himself, and, and we're not made in the image of angels. When, when he said, let us make man in our image, he was speaking the language of God within God himself in the enclosed society of the divine Godhead. The Father, through the Word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to himself, within himself. And what language is he speaking to himself? He's speaking the language of God, and the language of God is God. Here's our problem. We no longer speak God. In fact, we have a hard enough time just communicating with each other. We used to speak God. In fact, the Scripture says that when Adam and God walked together in the cool of the evening in the garden, they communicated together. What language do you think they were communicating in? They spoke God because sin hadn't entered into the world yet. But after the exile from the Garden of Eden, humanity could no longer speak God. In fact, after the Tower of Babel, we could no longer speak to each other. And if statistics are true today, after marriage, communication completely disappears. <laughs> so the baby, Jesus, begins to grow, and he begins to think and dream in his native tongue, the language of God. And as he begins to look at that, he begins to take the transcendent cosmic thought 
and then try to load that into the cardboard boxes of human vocabulary and understanding. And the problem is the boxes are insufficient for the weight of the thought that he has given to us. And so Jesus is using words, and some of you that read the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, you're looking at this and going, sometimes it's so hard to understand, I'm going to tell you why. Because Jesus is speaking at two different levels. He's speaking in the language of humanity, and he is speaking in the language of God, trying to make it so that we can understand. And this shows up almost immediately when he's 12 years old. Jesus is with his parents, and he goes to a feast. Could have been his bar mitzvah. And as he is there, they finish their thing. They begin to head home, and a couple of days out, they recognize that they have left him behind because they thought he was traveling with other members. And they go back to the temple courts, and Joseph and Mary are angry with Jesus. They're going, listen, you, you worried us. I can't believe that you just let us go and didn't, you know, we're really upset with you. And they said, son... We've been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus, at 12 years old, beginning to think now in his native tongue of God, says this to them. He asks them a question. Don't you know I had to be about my father's business? Don't you know? In other words, he's saying, Mom and Dad, listen, I know that you know stuff. I know that you know things cognitively. I, I know that. But don't you know? Don't, don't you know things in a different level? Don't you know this level up here versus this level down here? And the next verse is brilliant because it says they didn't understand what he was saying to them. For those of you with teenagers, you may not understand what they're trying to tell you from time to time. Why not? Why did they not understand him? Because Jesus at 12 years old is using words at two different levels. Jesus said, I had to be about my father's business. And Joseph is standing there. And he goes, well, well Joseph, uh, you're my father, but you're not my father. You're only my father. I have a father. Well, he's not really my father, but he's my father. And he has a business. Okay, Joseph, I know you, you have a business. But he's got a business. It's not really a business, but my father has a business, and I've got to be about that. And then he looks at them and says, don't you know what I'm talking about? And they knew not what he was saying. And for the rest of his ministry, every time Jesus left a room, everybody was asking two questions. Who was that? And what was he talking about? Sometimes what is written in the scriptures is really funny when you capture it in the right context. And, and, and one of the interactions that I absolutely love is found in John chapter 12. Jesus is, is in a room full of Jewish people. He's in a house and the place is packed. Nobody else can get in. And Andrew and Philip are at the front door when two men walk up to him and say, we would like to have a conversation with Jesus. And these two men are Greeks or they're Gentiles. And so they work their way through the crowd to get to Jesus and they said, hey, there are two men at the door that would like to have a conversation with you. Should we bring them in or not? This is his answer. This, this is his answer. Listen to it. <clears throat> Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's his answer. I can, I can just see Philip and Andrew as they're working their way back to the crowd going, so do you think he meant yes or no? <laughs> how, how do we do this? 
But the thing is, is, is Jesus is speaking at two levels. What he is saying is, listen, as long as I am confined into the seed of this body, how big of a building can we really build? But if, if I die and am planted, when I am resurrected, I will be able to be fruitful enough that everybody who wants to come to me can come through the doorway of my life and resurrection and all be a part of the commonwealth of Israel. Speaking at two different levels. And this happens over and over again. In fact, we, we have had 2,000 years to work through this stuff. Can you imagine being there when he said it for the first time? Let me try this one on for you. What do you think you would have done when Jesus stood there and said, let the dead bury the dead? I'm, I'm looking at this thinking, this sounds like a zombie movie. <laughs> the night the dead buried the dead. And Jesus is standing there saying, you know, he looks at those people, those people are dead. They're dead. You're alive, but, but they're dead. These people, are, they're dead. Let, let the dead bury the dead. They're not really dead, but they're dead. They're dead. And they knew not what he was talking about. Because Jesus communicates at two levels. So now, when we move into the scripture that we use as our text in John 10, 10, Jesus is carrying this thought forward the same way and in the same conversation. So he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it to the full or that they may have it abundantly. Now, you see the problem, right? When Jesus is saying this, he's saying it to a room full of live people. And you cannot tell me that there are not people in that room going, um, I'm like alive. You're telling me that you've come to bring me life and I, I'm, I'm alive here. So what does Jesus mean when he speaks of life? Jesus is actually tapping back into a conversation between God and Adam and Eve that took place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. God had told them when he put them in the garden, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden that you want except for one. Leave the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil alone. Don't touch that one. For if you eat of it, you will surely die. And the devil comes along and he begins to trade on this issue of communication. And he says to them, did God really tell you not to touch that or you would die? Yeah, oh, God's like that. He, he, he didn't really mean it. You know, that's, that's just his way of trying to say he wanted to keep that fruit for himself. You know, it's like hiding stuff in your refrigerator so your kids don't see it. He, he didn't really mean all of that. And the next thing that you know, Eve sees that the fruit looks good and she reaches up and she takes some and she ate it and she gave it to her husband and he ate it. And then notice this. After they ate it, here's my question. Did they instantly drop dead after eating that fruit? No. And God comes by later that evening and they begin to hide and he says, what have you done? And they're going, nothing. And he says, well, we ate of the fruit and we didn't die. And Jesus says, oh, trust me, you're dead. No, we're not. We're alive. No, no, trust me, you're dead. And this whole issue is actually fundamental 
in the communication between God and humanity is what does life mean? He says, I have come that you might have life. People said, well, I am alive. And Jesus said, no, you're existing, but you're existing in a state of death. You are under the rule and dominion of death. You exist, but you are not alive. There's a difference between those two. He says, I am life, and I am come to give you life, and I've come to give you life more abundantly, but you are not alive. The fundamental to the whole understanding of Christianity is this, that Jesus has come to trade our existence for his life. And that that would be more abundant. Now, I I do believe that we know what life means here. I think we know way more about what life means than we think we do. We know that the life of Christ is about joy and peace and hope and faith and the purity that comes with that. I believe we also know what it means to exist in death. It's all the hurt and the hate and the unforgiveness and the prejudice and the bitterness and the filth and the murder and the sexual immorality and the addiction and the bondage. All of that is death. It's not a different kind of life. It is existing in death. And Jesus said, I've come to address that. So two people can be standing right in front of you. One of them is alive in life abundant and the other is existing in death because death reigns over their life. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have life He can translate us from death to life in the snap of a finger. He can change everything. But when he does, on the outside, we look the same. People come to this altar and receive Christ, and when they walk out the door, their countenance doesn't change. I mean, they don't have a halo. They're not glowing. We look the same, but everything has changed on the inside. And the reason that Christianity confuses people all of the time is because we don't understand when he's talking at two different levels. Paul, Paul took on that same nature when he said this words. He said, he's talking to living people when he said, I am crucified with Christ. And they're going, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're standing right there in front of me and you're living and you're alive. And he goes, no, 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 no. It's no longer I that live. And they're going, well, it looks like you. No, it's Christ who lives within me. It's no longer me living, but Christ lives within me. And he says, you see, it's because I tapped into the life that Christ gave to me, and he lives within me, and it's changed everything. I no longer live in the the realm of death, but in Christ. Which brings us to this place when people look at those of you who attend church and know Christ, and they say, so are you alive or dead? And you're going, "It's, it's not that easy. It's more complicated than that. I'm alive because Christ lives within me. This is the fundamental essence of Christianity. There are times when we as pastors can make becoming a Christian and getting saved so complicated that it's a miracle that anybody finds God. Jesus tells us in the scripture that what we need to do is to receive the life which is in him and that he will come and live within us and that he in a snap of a finger will remove us from existing in death to life more abundantly. But not only is the word life confusing, so is the word abundant or full in this case. And the reason it is is because you can look 
at an issue that took place in the Bible where there was a very, very poor woman who puts two coins into the offering and Jesus is standing there with his disciples and he says to them, that woman is living in the abundance of life. She is rich. And they're thinking, no, she's not. And he goes, oh, yes, she is. She's living in the abundance of my life. And then you can have a billionaire who's on the other side going, I'm living in abundance. I have everything. I've got my life. And Jesus says, no, you're dead. No, I've got money. No, you don't even know that you are naked and you're poor and you're blind because of the difference in the way that the words abundance are used. And God says, I want you to have life and life abundant because not only will I bring you life, but life abundant leads me to bring you to life eternal. And life as merely existence leads you to death. Now, I'm not here to shock anyone this morning, but if you live long enough and Jesus tarries, every person in this room is going to die. You will die a physical death. We can't, particularly when we're young, we have a hard time grasping transitions. You know, we... We have parents of newborns here, and you're, it's hard for you to believe as you're looking at those cupid little lips and kissing that precious face that 15 years later, those same lips are going to sass you. <laughs> Not only that, but when that little girl is 15 years old and she's looking at her great-great-grandmother who's about to die, she cannot comprehend the fact that someday she may be in the same place. That's her grandmother. The transitions of life are, are so difficult. I've spent 26 years of my ministry working with youth and young adults and, and active in that age group, and here's what I've come to discover. I love them, but young people think that they're going to live forever. Worse yet, they think they're going to live forever young. And they look at an old dude like me, and they say, Oh, my goodness, what happened to him? <laughs> Let me tell you something. They can't grasp the thought that I might have ever looked like them. Is there anybody in here that's 13, 14, 15, or 16? Can I see your hand? I see a few hands. Let me tell you something. Preachers around the nation this morning are preaching good news, good news. I'm sick of it. I've got some really bad news for you. <laughs> I am your future. You may not know it yet, as I am. You look at this and you're going, that cannot possibly happen. Oh, oh yes, oh yes. As you are, so once was I. As I am, you soon will be. You live long enough, son, and you're going to look like this. But what happens for all the rest of us is that life begins to educate us. I mean, the blows of life are hard, and they hit hard, and, and they're heavy, and we go through times where we're going, I don't know how I'm going to survive this. And, and generally what begins to happen is after a period of time, things that we didn't even know we had starts to hurt. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Stuff that used to work doesn't. This body is going south. And you recognize that we are all headed toward the physical reality that you never thought would happen to you when you were young. You're going to die. 
Every person is heading there through that threshold of physical death that's going to happen. And if you live life abundant, if Christ's life lives within you, then those blows that bring to you age, though the body chips away and no longer functions the way that we were able to, you will be able to escape that when you pass through that door of death and you go from life abundant into life eternal. And you will receive a glorified body. And all of us old people go, oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. And it won't look like this body. It's going to be different because it has to function in a different place. In fact, 1 John 3, 2 says, what we will be has not been made known. But when he appears, we will have a body like him. So we will go and receive a glorified body when we step through from life abundant through the door of death into life eternal. And we won't look like this and we will celebrate differently because our earthly bodies are not created for eternity. Life abundant through the doorway of death into life eternal. But if you live in death, if you live in the existence of death, then death leads to death and torment. And if we step through the dominion of death through the same doorway, Christians and non-Christians alike will all step through the same doorway of death. But the moment we do, we go vastly different directions. Death gives way to death. Life abundant gives way to life eternal. Now, I understand that we all have different ideas of what heaven might be like. There's some people that I've heard say, boy, I hope there's pool tables in heaven. I've heard others say, I hope there's bass fishing in heaven, which, which by the way, that one does hold a little bit of an interest for me. <laughs> but we have this weird idea that somehow we're going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp for a thousand years. And after a thousand years of floating on a cloud playing a harp, we're going to think, there's got to be something else to do up here besides that. I'm, I'm pretty good at the harp by now. And, and we have these amazingly distorted concepts of, of what heaven is going to be like. And because we don't understand what the word eternal means, we float around in this thought. So let me tell you something. The first split second, and I know I'm using a terminology of time to describe timelessness, but that's the, we're working with cardboard boxes here of understanding. You, you understand that. In the first split, whatever it is on the other side of timelessness, the first thing that we sense, the unspeakable bliss, the unimaginable beauty, the unutterable glory, that when you step out of space and time and you step into the presence of timeless eternity, that feeling, that emotion, that reality never changes for eternity. There will never be a moment that you will be bored in heaven because eternity is unchanging. And if anything, you will only get better and better in the way that you feel and discover things when you get to heaven. It is the splendor of glory is eternal. Worship team, if you'd please begin to make your way here. I've been in the ministry a long time and I've had opportunities to be with people when they were passing through that veil. And you know, honestly, those of us who are believers, what we say is, I'm not afraid to die. 
and I admit that to you, I'm not afraid to die. However, going through the door to get there and how that might look, I'm not really excited about. Any of you feel the same way? You know, it's, it's not the death part that's scary, it's what's the doorway like? And I, I, I heard it described as, you know, we live in New York, what it would be like for somebody to be in a barrel and go over Niagara Falls and that moment there's that, like, <gasps> that, that last breath, what that might look like, only to land in the glorious splendor and beauty of eternity. And so, Lord, we're not afraid of what's on the other side, but we don't like the door. And he says, I want you to know, and I've, I've been with people in that moment and it doesn't happen with everybody. I wish it did. I wish it happened with every believer, but it doesn't always happen this way. But I've been with some that, that suddenly have this momentary clarity. And they go, oh, beautiful. And they breathe their last, and instantly you begin to recognize they saw something on the other side of the curtain that we can't see. But they begin to recognize what it's like to go and to have the life of Christ come in and go from life that is existing in death to the life of Christ within us, that he gives to us life more abundantly that leads us to life eternal. I'm gonna ask that you would stand with me and we're gonna sing a song before we get to communion today and I want you to sing this with all of your heart because it's the communication of God to us in the name of Jesus.